Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We are in a series called The Way of Jesus, a study in the Gospel of Mark. During this series, we want to spend time with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live the way of Jesus. Thank you for joining us. Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, it was a Sunday morning, and Sarah and I were just a few years in to our marriage. We were both serving on the, the worship team, leading music that Sunday, and it was my Sunday to bring breakfast. And so the night before, I had prepared uh, a breakfast casserole. I make a really good breakfast casserole. And unfortunately, the we woke up just a little bit late that Sunday morning. So I ran out to the kitchen, set the oven at 350, knew I had 40 minutes that I needed to get that casserole done. And the problem was I didn't have 40 minutes. So I noticed a lever on the front of the oven. And I thought to myself, self, if I pull this lever and lock the oven shut, it's going to seal the heat in and cook my casserole even quicker. I now know that that starts a self-cleaning program on the oven that heats your oven to over 900 degrees. A few minutes later, I'm standing there in the kitchen, smoke pouring out of the oven. My beautiful, delicious casserole is incinerated, and the handle that I locked is in my hand because I've broken it off trying to unlock the oven. I remember shortly before I set the self-cleaning program, I thought to myself, I couldn't possibly be wrong about this. Even though Sarah was saying, I don't think that's a good idea, Brian. It was incinerated and I did not know what to do. So let, let, let me ask you this question. I just kept coming back to this this week. I knew I couldn't possibly be wrong about that. How was I wrong? And I just want to pose that to you. Is there anything in your life where you've thought to yourself, is there a story where you've thought to yourself, I couldn't possibly be wrong about that? I texted Sarah this week and I said, hey, do you have any stories? Do you remember any stories from when we were first married when I thought I couldn't possibly be wrong? And she texted me back and said, do you need just one? Like, we can all relate to this. Maybe I just want to make myself feel better, but I think we probably all have stories where we thought, I could not possibly be wrong about this. We're in a series in the Gospel of Mark, and we're spending time with Jesus so we can live the way of Jesus. And there's a group of people in the story today that we're going to look at, and they couldn't imagine that they were wrong about how they were living out their faith. And there's a lot we can learn from them today. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have black Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. Mark chapter 7 can be found on page 818 of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. We were in a staff meeting last week, and we asked Tad, our facilities manager, hey, do people really take these Bibles? And he said like three to four a week. I was overjoyed to hear that. Please take a copy of God's word home with you. Remember, as we're reading a gospel, you always want to look at what Jesus said right before the part you're studying. And as Steve taught last week, what we find at the end of chapter six is that Jesus was challenging the assumptions of the disciples 
and the assumptions they had made about God and him. So it's no coincidence. We get to chapter seven and we see, if you're following in your notes, that Jesus continues to challenge assumptions. He continues, this time of the religious leaders and what they think about God and the box they've put him in. So let's take a look at how he does that, beginning in chapter 7, verse 1. We're just going to read the first verse to begin. It says, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were religious leaders in Jesus' time. They loved God. And they wanted to honor the word of God. They loved the word of God and the commands of God. But in their effort to do that, over several hundred years, they created their own rules to protect the word of God. They kind of put a fence around it to protect it. And by the time of Jesus, they had developed an oral and written tradition about how to apply the Bible to their everyday lives. And what that means is they added long lists of specific duties and prohibitions to the law. We'll come back to that in just a minute. And we're told these leaders had traveled from Jerusalem to the region of Galilee. I want to put the map on the screen for you so you can see where we are. Jerusalem is on the bottom half of that map. Galilee is near the top. They had walked 79 miles, probably about five days travel. And they didn't walk 79 miles to listen and learn from Jesus and his teachings. They wanted to gather evidence so they could put him to death for claiming that he was God. And to them, there was no way Jesus could possibly be God because he didn't do things the way they thought they should be done. And there was no way they could possibly be wrong about that. We're told in verse 2, You can follow on the screen. We're told in verse 2 that the Pharisees saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed. And then verses 3 to 5 go on to tell us why they considered this such a big deal. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So you probably picked up on a phrase that is repeated multiple times in this story, five to be exact. The phrase is the tradition of the elders. And if you're following in your notes, the tradition of the elders is the set of rules that had been formed around the Bible. It was the set of rules that had been formed around the Bible. And this is important. They are not the Bible, but they are held in the same regard as the word of God. They were held in the same regard, given equal weight. And with the advent of all these rules, the motive for obeying God's commands changed as well. Instead of seeing these commands as a gift from God that offered a better way to live, the Pharisees turned this gift into a way to earn God's favor. If you're following in your notes, the Pharisees believed following the rules led to righteousness. 
following the rules led to righteousness. And we just need to know God never intended his law, his commands to become a measure of righteousness. He instead wanted a relationship with his people in which obedience flowed out of that relationship from the heart. The Pharisees not only tried their hardest to obey these traditions of the elders, they taught others that obeying the traditions of the elders and observing all the rules could make them righteous as well. They would be closer to God. And these religious leaders went to prolific lengths in creating rules and created entire books filled with rules on how to obey the word of God. In one of those books, there are 35 pages on how to wash your hands. Now, I'm about to do something I've never had the privilege of doing in teaching on a Sunday morning before. I'm going to talk with you about washing hands. Exciting, I know. Stick with me for a minute. There's a payoff. In the book of Exodus, it's the second book of the Bible, Exodus 30, verses 17 to 21. It was required for priests to wash their hands and feet when they were ministering at the altar in the temple. But we have to know this. It had nothing to do with hygiene. Nothing at all. It it represented It was so symbolic. These priests represented God to the people. And this was a beautiful symbol of preparing themselves to enter into God's presence. It was a symbolic way of acknowledging that a person was not worthy to be in the presence of the perfect creator God. It prepared them for worship. But what they did is they took the command command found in Exodus... They built up 35 pages of rules devoted to hand-washing around that one law. And they took a beautiful symbolic command that only applied to priests, and they extended it to everyone in all situations. And again, these rules served as a scoreboard for how much God loved you. These rules had very little to do with the heart and was concerned with external obedience. These rules were burdensome. And they were too much for people to follow. As a quick aside, this is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, you can see this on the screen. With with that context in mind, right, you you get this hand-washing idea. Jesus would say this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, a yoke is a teaching, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, my teaching is easy, and my burden is light. If you're following in your notes, Jesus offers a better way than rule following. He offers a better way, it's a way of living from the inside out rather than the outside in. So the religious leaders have walked 79 miles and they question Jesus because his disciples are not washing their hands according to the tradition of the elders. This seems kind of ridiculous to us, but we have to see the seriousness of what's going on here. Jesus has claimed to be God. Steve talked about that last week. He's claimed to be God. And to these religious leaders, if this guy was God... 
he would make his followers wash their hands before eating because God would follow the tradition of the elders and there was no way they could possibly be wrong in their assumptions about God. And it's into this heated environment that Jesus speaks for the first time in verse 6. Would you read this with me in the first gray box on your notes? It says, He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I'll continue in verse 7. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. We have some good friends in Birmingham, Alabama, and if their pastor would have just read those words, they would have said, them are fighting words. Them are fighting words. Jesus calls them on their religiosity. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah, who was a prophet in the Old Testament, who kept calling God's people back to him, back into a relationship. And if you look at the wording, Jesus calls them hypocrites. It's the only time in the Gospel of Mark that that word is used. Somebody's called a hypocrite, and it's interesting who it is. It's the religious leaders. If you're following in your notes, hypocrite literally means to wear a mask. To wear a mask. It was play acting. They had taken God's words and rather than obeying them out of a place of secure relationship, they were putting on a show with all of their rule following and pretending. And if we look at verse 8, there is some strong language used. Jesus said, you have let go of the commands of God. Let go is not translated nearly strong enough. If you're following in your notes, let go means to utterly reject. Utterly reject. Jesus is saying, you have rejected the commands of God to follow your own traditions. Notice Jesus doesn't address hand washing at all. Did you see that? Like he doesn't answer their question about hand washing because he's going after something much deeper than hand washing. He's going after their hearts. He wants their hearts. And rather than address hand washing, in verse 9, Jesus gives a specific example of how they have let go or utterly rejected God's word. You can see this on the screen or in your Bibles. And he continued, Jesus continued speaking. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. So rather than address hand-washing, Jesus gives one specific example, and it involves taking care of one's parents, which was a huge deal at the time of Jesus. This was an issue of obeying the fifth out of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. Some rabbis considered this one of the most significant commands. 
But the religious leaders had come up with a tradition called Corbin. You probably saw that word in there, Corbin. If you're following your notes, Corbin is setting aside something devoted to God. This could include money or land, possessions, inheritance, anything. It was a way of tagging something as devoted to God. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing. We, we do this. It's just not in the Bible. And what was happening is when their family needed help, which remember was a high priority, helping family members was a high priority. They would say, I can't help you, Corbin. I don't have any money, Corbin. I don't have any time to give you, Corbin. I mean, do you see what they're doing? The religious leaders used their traditions to find a loophole so they didn't have to obey God's word. And I want to point out something that I believe is going on here that may not stand out to us at first glance, but we can't miss it. Jesus speaks to the traditions of the elders, and if you're following in your notes, he upholds the authority of God's word. He upholds the authority of God's word. Verse 13 vividly displays what Jesus thinks of placing traditions above the commands of God. You can see this on the screen again. Verse 13, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. If you're following in your notes, nullify. Nullify means to invalidate, to cancel out to make no use of or value. You just invalidate it. And Jesus says to these religious leaders, that's what you have done to God's word that you claim to love so much. And Jesus says, I could give you a hundred examples of how you've done that. Now, before we write these religious leaders off, And we just say, man, they're a bunch of bad people. They got it all wrong. They're out of touch. This has nothing to do with us. They're not all bad. And this is so important to us today. And sometimes we might be more like the Pharisees than we care to admit. And this is so important. We can't miss this, right? We can't miss that Jesus is going after the authority of God's word over our traditions, And what this means is that if we fail to honor the unique authority of the Bible, then we fail to honor God. And practically what this means is if Scripture has the ultimate authority in our lives, then we adjust our life to the Scriptures, not the other way around. Because if we manipulate Scripture to justify the way we live, then we're creating our own God or we are our own God. And the temptation we all have, let's just level the playing field here. The temptation we all wrestle with is to place our our, our traditions at the same level as the Bible. I want to spend just a, a little bit of time here answering two questions. I think this is so important for us. Two questions. The first, how do I know if I'm doing that? How do I know if I'm elevating my traditions to the level of God's word? And then two, what are some examples? First, how do we know if we're holding our traditions as equally important as scripture? Let me say this up front. I have four questions that we can process through. Traditions aren't bad. I just want to say that traditions aren't bad. We have a ton of traditions, even in our church family, right? Sunday services, Christmas Eve services, 
Good Friday service, the fall fest that took place last weekend, the foster care Christmas party we talked about today. Those are traditions. They're terrific. But traditions become dangerous when we become more devoted to them than we are to God's word. And so I want to give you four questions that the Lord brought to mind this week as we evaluate our traditions and whether they are equal with the Bible. You may want to write these down on the back of your notes or uh, take pictures of the screen whenever they come up. Question one, are there any traditions in your life where Jesus could not possibly disagree with you? Jesus could not possibly disagree with your tradition. Some areas in your life or beliefs. You, you think to yourself, I can't possibly be wrong about this. Question two, is there any part of your life where you are unwilling to let the way of Jesus inform how you think, speak, or act? Is there, are there any parts of your life where Jesus is just off limits? The Bible is just, it's off limits. You can't touch that, Jesus. The third question, it goes right along with number two. Do you ever find yourself saying, this is so important to me that I know what the Bible says, but? Anytime, I know what the Bible says about that, but that's a dangerous place to be with traditions and beliefs. Question four, is there any tradition that you would not be willing to humbly say, I could be wrong about that? I could be wrong about that. Because following Jesus will make us challenge our assumptions and traditions and bring us face-to-face with issues where we humbly say, I could be wrong about that. I could be wrong. The second question I want to attempt to answer, and then we'll move on to the last part of this passage. What are some examples of this? Right, You may already have some thoughts going through your mind. That is good. I'm thankful if that's happening. But I want to give you some specific examples so we can concretely apply them to our lives with specificity. So here's just some examples. There's a wide range here. Some traditions are passed down from our families of origin. Family of origin. Maybe it's like how we handle conflict that doesn't look like Jesus. Right? We say, I know Jesus commands me to forgive. But our family doesn't forgive. We hold grudges. That's the way we do it. Or maybe it's the way we handle our finances, right? We were taught money is for security or pleasure or getting rich when the Bible teaches us that everything we have is a gift from God and we are stewards of what he's given us. It can be subtle like that, right? Maybe it's how we view people. Certain races, ethnicities, nationalities, or genders are better than others when the Bible clearly teaches that all people are created in the image of God and have incredible value and worth to him. Those are some traditions that could get elevated. Some traditions are passed down from churches we've attended in the past. Like one style of music is better than the other. 
Man, the worship wars were hot in the 80s and 90s because traditions were elevated over God's word. Or what about the tradition that God loves you more the more good things you do so you try harder and harder to earn God's favor? Some traditions that split churches, and I wish I wasn't making this up, was the color of choir robes or translations of the Bible that had to be used. We can elevate traditions. Some traditions are passed down based on the political party we align with. This is a big one in America right now. It is hard for us to believe that Jesus would disagree with anything in the political party we align with and anyone who thinks differently than us does not follow Jesus as closely as us. I mean, it's so easy to let our politics inform the Bible rather than the Bible informing our politics. And in God's word, we know that Jesus clearly reveals that his kingdom is not of this world. And his upside down kingdom looks very different than the powers of this world. And let me say this, there are things in each political party that Jesus would agree and disagree with. But we live in an age where people are elevating the tradition of politics with equality with the Bible. Some traditions are passed down from culture. And culture's telling us today, and they're seeking to inform the way we think about abortion or sexuality or gender, when the Bible clearly tells us that God is the author of life in a mother's womb, that marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman, and that God created us male and female for his glory. Like we're being informed by culture and whether it's family of origin, whether it's church traditions, political or culture, can you see how the outside traditions outside the Bible, if we're not careful, we can elevate them and be formed in a way where they supersede God's word. And we just need to know that it is not possible to follow Jesus and let go of and nullify the teachings of Jesus found in the Bible. If we do that, we're hypocrites and we're play acting like Jesus called the religious leaders. But Jesus offers a better way. He wants us to experience the abundant life that's only found in him. And the only way we learn what that abundant life looks like is in his word. And it starts in our hearts. And that's where Jesus turns his attention beginning in verse 14. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked them? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomachs and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And then would you read this with me? Second grade box on your notes, verse 20. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. I'll continue. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. In verse 15, Jesus uses the word defile. We need to know what it means. If you're following in your notes, it's to make something impure. 
It's making something impure and unfit for God. And Jesus is saying it's not food and unclean hands that make us unfit for God. That's what the Pharisees taught. Jesus says defilement does not happen from the outside. It's something that originates from the inside of a person. And if we look at verse 21, Jesus said it is from our hearts that all evil originates. And then he goes on to list 13 characteristics of the evil actions that flow naturally from a sinful heart. Actions that result in sorrow, harmful behavior, death. Unwashed hands are not the problem. Jesus never addresses unwashed hands. He talks about the heart. When we think about our hearts, where we naturally go is the organ that pumps blood throughout our bodies at a rate that allows the human body to function as God created. That's where our mind goes, first thing. So it's safe to say when we think that, that the heart is one of the most important organs God placed within our bodies. I think it's also safe to say that a person's heart is one of the most important spiritual organs as well. And according to the Bible, if you're following in your notes, the heart is the center of who we are. The center of who we are. It's really interesting. If you do a word study on heart, you'll find verses that indicate that we think, we decide, we act, and we tell right from wrong with our hearts. It's why the Bible speaks so frequently to our hearts. God addresses this throughout scripture because if you're following in your notes, God has always wanted the heart of his people. Our full, whole selves. He wants our heart. God created us to be in a relationship with him. He gave us his heart. And his desire is that he would have our whole hearts and full devotion. But we gave our hearts to other things, things that were fleeting. Things that we thought could make us happy or feel like we belonged or had security, but they left us empty. And chasing after other things over God is called sin, and it defiles our hearts. And then throughout the Old Testament, we just see it again and again. God would remind his people that he wanted their hearts more than sacrifices, more than anything. He wanted their hearts. And he promised that he was always planning a mission to redeem hearts. In Jeremiah, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, in 24-7, we see this on the screen. It says, I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. Ezekiel, another prophet, would say this, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And the New Testament tells us that when we place our trust in what Jesus accomplished in his life, death and resurrection, our sin is forgiven and we are given a new heart. I love how the New Testament book of Titus tells us in chapter three, verse five, he, Jesus saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The moment we follow Jesus, something mysterious happens. It is mysterious. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives. And the moment we follow Jesus, if you're following on your notes, the moment we follow Jesus, we're given new hearts. 
Hearts that are sensitive to spiritual things. Hearts that want to please God. Hearts that are convicted when we sin and go against God's word. Hearts that care for things that God cares about. Hearts that are no longer defiled. Listen, this is why this is so important. By not addressing hand washing and instead focusing on the heart, Jesus levels the playing field. Nobody's better than anybody else. We've all committed at least one of the sins on that list given just a few minutes ago. You can read back through it again, I guarantee. We've all fallen short of God's standards and we are not worthy to be in his presence. Our heart is unfit and defiled and no amount of hand washing can take away our sin. If you're following in your notes, we don't need our hands cleaned. We need to have our hearts changed. Jesus isn't looking for behavior modification. This is why the Pharisees like their rules because behavior modification is easier. But the gospel goes way deeper than outward obedience. It deals with the deepest parts of our heart that we're sinful people in need of a savior. So if you're here today and you've tried to earn your way to God, you've tried the behavior modification route, right? You've tried being a good person. Maybe you've thought following Jesus was more about rules than it is about a relationship with the one who created you. Maybe you've held on to some deep rooted traditions that you could not submit to Jesus. Today can be the day that you receive a new heart. And it doesn't mean your life will magically get better and all your problems will go away. But today can be the day you receive a new heart and you don't have to carry those burdens around anymore on your own. And you can experience hope that your best efforts couldn't produce. Jesus wants to change your heart, but you have to want him to change your heart. There are others here, and if we're honest, we need a heart adjustment. We've been given a new heart. We have a regenerated heart, but we've confused tradition with the word of God, and our lives are out of alignment a little bit. We're followers of Jesus, but there's places in our lives where we are not living the way of Jesus. And let me say this. It doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It means you're human. It means you're human, but what it requires is that we continually need to evaluate the condition of our hearts. King Solomon put it best in Proverbs chapter four, verse 23, when he said, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. And if you're following in your notes, we need to guard and continually evaluate the alignment of our hearts. We need to evaluate this. A few years ago, our life group was doing a study on parenting and it was, it was life changing for me. This idea of the heart clicked for me. There's an author named Emerson Agerich. And I think he wrote one of the best parenting books I've ever read called love and respect in the family. And in that book, he wrote this quote and I share it with you because it's the quote that changed the way I see parenting. He wrote this, there is no condition that causes me to be unloving or disrespectful. In other words, if I am unloving or disrespectful, it is not because of certain circumstances caused by others that make me react unlovingly or disrespectfully. 
I choose to be harsh, independent of the circumstances. Our kids do not cause us to sin, but reveal our sinful choices. Our children's disobedience and disrespect does not cause us to react in unloving ways. Our reaction comes from within. It changed everything. And I finally realized that no one else could make me angry and no one else could cause me to react in a certain way. I chose that on my own and it came from my heart. And that led me on a journey of confession and repentance and asking God to change me from the inside out, not make me a better person, not help me try harder, but change me, change my tradition of what I believed a Christian parent had to look like in order to get their kids to obey. I needed a heart adjustment. And around that same time, a guy said to a group of us, He asked this question, do you know the best thing that could happen to me each day? And I was just, I was like waiting with bated breath, like what's the answer? I want to know what the answer is. And he said, the best thing that could happen to me each day is that God would reveal to me where I need to repent. I didn't like that. I wanted something better. But I have come to believe he is 100% true. He was 100% correct. Repent means to turn from, to turn from my assumptions, my sin, things that I have placed above Jesus and return to him. It means saying, I was wrong about that. And we all have areas where we need to adjust and say, maybe I'm wrong, or we've gotten things out of order, or Jesus just isn't the most important thing anymore. And the beauty of repentance, we hear it as this bad word. But the beauty of repentance is found in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So for the next couple minutes, we're just gonna take time to pray. We're gonna take a few minutes to spend time with God. For some of you here, I just wanna speak to you just a couple more words and then I'll be quiet. For some of you here, you can ask for a new heart right now. You can ask God for a heart change. He can change your heart. You can place your trust in Jesus, follow him. The Holy Spirit will take up residence in your life. You're given a new heart and you can experience a new way of living. Maybe that's what you wanna pray during this time. For others of us, I want to encourage you to use this time to ask God for a heart adjustment. I don't know what it is in your life, but is there any part of your life that's gotten out of alignment and it doesn't look like the way of Jesus? Take this time to confess and repent and turn to him. Take this time to talk to God. He'll reveal it to you if you ask. And we can get our hearts in alignment with him and walk in his way. So I want to invite you to take this gift of time and quiet. Talk to God. And then the team's going to lead us in a song of confession and hope. Thanks for joining us today. 
If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.